moving from the Lord's table. Let's turn our Bibles today to uh, Colossians chapter 3, please. Colossians chapter 3. And the way you would do that is you would flip to the back of your Bible to about right there. You'd be in Paul's letters. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Chapter 3, you have one of the great uh, Pauline household codes, the way to live as a Christian household. Beginning in verse 18, wives, be subject to your husbands and so forth. Husbands, do your job. Wives, do your job. And he, he goes through the jobs. Ephesians 5 does the same thing. The reason I'm asking you to turn here today is because I want to talk about, in our discussion, the riches of divine grace, the things that we can lose, the kinds of things that are in question, because we were talking about what you can't lose because of what Jesus did for you when you first trusted in Him, like the new birth, you can't be unborn. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. You don't lose the Holy Spirit, even though David could lose the endowment of the Spirit. You can't lose the indwelling New Testament ministry of the Spirit. The work of God in the blood of Christ, all that He secured is your redemption, propitiation, reconciliation. These things called the blood of Christ effects. You don't lose these things. The the positional, if you will, forgiveness that all your sins are forgiven. That you the, the ones you haven't committed yet are forgiven in terms of your position in Christ. You can't lose that. You don't lose the baptism of the Spirit uniting you to Jesus with the destiny that includes being the heir of all things. You can't lose the inter- eternal inheritance that's been laid up for you that the Bible says is, is, is secured, vouchsafed by God in Christ. You can't lose these things. But there are things that God has given you that you can lose. And so it's important to remind ourselves of these things even as we're walking through all the things that God has done irrevocably for us. You're not going to be unborn again, but you can walk in darkness. And the application is don't do that. So in Colossians 3, before we get to the household code of how to walk as a Christian family, and it's really clear and it's very helpful and it's extremely offensive to our culture today, what Paul says in terms of roles between husbands and wives and so forth. Before we get to that, you find, you find a Pauline summary of the Christian life. Just getting some context in verse 5 of Colossians 3, therefore consider the members of your body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. This translation, consider these dead to that, is reckon it, think it through, that you're separated from sin in terms of its power over your life. Romans Romans, uh, chapter 4 and chapter 6 stuff. For it's because of these things the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside. Make a choice to reject these categories of personal sin, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. Put these away from your mouth. Your mouth matters. What you say with it is supposed to proclaim the goodness of God. So watch your mouth is verse 8. Do not lie to one another. We're still watching our mouth. See, we're still doing the kinds of sins that we in church say, well, you know, you're not supposed to do that. But it's death. It's a walking, spiritual, functional, if you will, death. 
Don't lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now that's a mouthful, but there's a spiritual life that's fed and renewed by spiritual information as you're taking in the word of God. And this is a renewal in verse 11 in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all in and all. And I don't know if you just heard it, but we just resolved the racial conflict in all cultures, the culture versus culture conflict that we call race, but we really mean cultural things. This is how we do it, and our, our way is better because it's us. No, no, this is how we do it, and our way is better because it's us, and we got Jesus. And, and you have this cultural conflict across all cultures, and we just dismissed all of it with the one factor that will undo all the deception that has infected all the cultures, and it is Jesus Christ. And it says, again, regarding this problem of cultural and racial uh, strife and, and uh, bigotry, Christ is all, is it, and he's in all believers. And so Christians of a Scythian, nasty barbarian Scythian persuasion, Scythians. Nobody wants to be around the Scythians. They're just dirty. Or whatever nasty thing that could be said about them from another culture. No, they're not considered the dirty, rejected Scythians. They're considered the Christians who happen to be of a Scythian extraction. And this is the resolution. It's the only resolution to the problems between cultures. And of course, you know what I'm talking about. You know that I'm talking about the Norwegians and the Swedes. You know I'm talking about the way the Puerto Ricans and the Mexicans don't get along in the army. You know that I'm talking about those, those cultural racial strife things that are everywhere in all cultures, and it isn't really genetic. Of course, I'm talking about the other things that people get worried about too. So verse 12, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, here's your command, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, humility gentleness, and patience. You know, if... If hymn number 363, To God Be the Glory, lyrics by Fanny Crosby, music by William H. Doan of Preston, Connecticut. If that song is our fight song, then Colossians 3.12 and 13 is the theme verse of the Roseland household. But listen to it. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on, make a choice to carry out the character, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. When I say that's, a, that's the theme verse, I'm saying as the household holder, as the paterfamilias, as the father of the household, that is our theme. That is our standard, Roselands, and we don't always rise to the occasion. We don't always meet the standard. And one thing you can do with that is lie and say, well, I mean, I kind of do. I, I want to lower the, lower the bar a little bit so I can kind of eke over and say, well, we kind of forgive each other. We can say, no, we're horribly failing at this, and we need to repent. We need to make the adjustment. We need God to work in us. But it's clear these are the responsibilities that he gives us. I wish we could all be downstairs and hear Tom's talk right now. Tom Tanucci teaching the children. He's teaching them the theological connection between God's obligations and the privileges that those obligations are. I, I've got to or I get to. 
That's his topic. That's his talk right now. I've got to do the things he said, or I get to do the things that he said. Who doesn't want to be this person? Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And the consequences that we're bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you forgive one another. It has been said that John Adams had this idea about virtue, that great founding father, so responsible for the Declaration of Independence. The second president of the United States died a Unitarian, but he, after all, was a lawyer in Boston, so we don't know. Anyway, John Adams was said to have, uh, have had this idea of virtue, that to be a virtuous person, you try to imagine what virtuous person would be like. Imagine you as a person with virtue and get that as a, as a, like a mental image, like a, like a model in your head and then aspire and seek and strive to be that person. That's the way standards work is we have high standards and then we insist on them and they get us out of bed and they get us to do the things that we don't feel like doing. And we put our feelings to the side and our obligations to the fore because we want to be that virtuous person and not just a craven slave to our sinful nature, our laziness, our various tendencies in our sin nature. Of course, this is the virtuous person that we want to be in Colossians 3, 12, and 13. And we must tell the truth. When I disobey the command to put on a heart of compassion and all these things, I need to confess that disobedience because... It is a sin to disobey God. And the Apostle Paul and the inspiration of the Spirit is giving you the standard. This is the the life you're called to live. In Galatians 5, these are the fruit of the Spirit. In Colossians 3, they're the obligations that since the Spirit lives in you, you're supposed to live it out. In verse 14, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. I think that when Jesus gives the new commandment that you love one another just as I've loved you, I think you can all look at moments and perhaps your last week or month or maybe even this morning where you didn't necessarily carry out that instruction of selfless disregard, disregard for self and, and concern for the other person as God sees that interest. Marital strife is often a failure to disregard self and concern for the other. Oh, she's not or he's not or whatever instead of I'm responsible too. God wants me too in this case. God wants this for her. God wants this for him. We all struggle with this. And obviously, if it's a command, I am responsible to obey it. A new commandment I give you that you love one another. Do you see how this works in terms of what you can lose? You have the opportunity to love something or in some time when you don't feel like it. And now you have the command to do it. Now at this occasion, in this moment in your life, are you walking by the Spirit so that you can Or do you forfeit the opportunity and lose out on the privilege of carrying out the the very character of Jesus Christ in your experience? These are most of the New Testament instruction is so that you will actually live out these irrevocable blessings that you've been given. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Literally, the peace of Christ is to rule in your hearts. You are responsible that it happen, that the peace of Christ rule in your hearts 
to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. You are instructed, we are instructed to be thankful. And I might at the end of verse 15 have a question, how? God, do you know what's going on in my life? Do you know what kind of strife and turmoil there is in my life? Do you know about the sin problem I'm dealing with? Do you know about the sin problems of those that I cannot get away from? And it's a constant, constant war. And yet, the peace of Christ is to rule in your hearts. How can I do it? I think verse 16 is the further instruction that further enables you to do this. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. The missing component in your life and mine when we do not have the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts when the outer turmoil becomes the inner stress, becomes the inner turmoil, when the outer war becomes the inner defeat, it is evident I have no peace, but why? Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. There is a lack of God's word, a supernatural and immaterial thing being resident in me. And I want you to notice that When he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, it's a third-person imperative. Some of you just went into sin for me saying that. I don't want to think about grammar after communion this late in the day. A third-person imperative. Come now, let us reason together. A third-person imperative? We don't do that in English. Everybody remember that? I'll never forget Mrs. Trussell. My fourth grade school teacher, hand-selected by my mother. I see you over there. Why? Because she was known to be a good disciplinarian. <laughs> I only had to see that demonstrated kinetically twice. Back when we were getting whippings in Texas, it was awesome. No, they had witnesses. There was always to get the other teacher to come witness. You get your spanking. Anyway, Mrs. Trussell. I believe it was her. She said that um, the subject of an imperative sentence is always you. I don't want to do grammar, Pastor. The subject of an imperative sentence is always you. Let me give you an example. Pay attention is a complete sentence in English. Pay attention. Two words. The verb pay, the object of the verb, attention. Pay attention. Get it? It's a complete sentence. That's not a sentence fragment. If you say sentence fragment and your multiple choice test, you get it wrong. That is a complete sentence, whether you put a period or an exclamation mark. Pay attention. Let me do another imperative sentence. Listen. Complete sentence. How can it be? Because it's got a verb. And it's imperative. And in English, the understood subject of every imperative verb is you. Because all English imperatives are second person You. They're all you sentences. But Greek has third-person imperatives. Why, Lord? Why? (laughs) Is there a third-person imperative? Why must I break my brain from my English mentality? My brain is formatted to English, 
And every language I learn is, a, is an analogy. So I learned he, Greek, and it's a third-person imperative. Let's put our finger back. Galatians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. See, the English translators cannot put it in the imperative unless they make it second person. So they say, let, you let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. But the Greek says, the subject is the word of Christ. The verb is richly dwell. And the command is that it do that. So in a sense, the third person imperative here, you're not really in the picture except that you being addressed by it, are responsible for it to happen. So the English work around, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. But the, the actual English is the word of Christ is to richly dwell within you. It must do this. It must be this way. It's imperative that the word of Jesus Christ richly dwell within me and you, that we are consumed or saturated with the propositional revelation of God in Jesus Christ. It's not an option. It's not a, well, that'd be nice, or that's for the super spiritual people, or, you know, well, he's a pastor. Pastors, it's their job. They have to. Would that they thought they did have to. Would that we all would consider this a binding responsibility on us. There's an application here. That a day out of the word is a wasted day. That a big decision made without reference to the, the word of God and thinking what God thinks is a wasted opportunity for a decision. What's the outcome? What's the result of the word of Christ richly dwelling within you and me? With all wisdom, there would be a consequence of the word richly dwelling, richly dwelling in you, saturating you. With all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another. The product is what I say from this inner work of God through his word, what I say to one another, teaching and admonishing one another. I knew it was for pastors, teaching and admonishing. That's the pastor. It is the pastor and everybody else teaching and admonishing one another. But what else? With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we're bringing our worship of God into our conversation with one another. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Okay, so I'm talking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, but then I'm also not with you now. It's about me singing to him in my heart. I can't sing in your heart. I'm sorry. It doesn't work. I can sing in my heart to God. So there's the corporate result in how we speak the things of God to one another, and there's the personal interrelational inter thing between you and God, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Notice in your heart, echoing what Jesus said about inside versus outside uh, worship. Go to your closet to fast. Don't tell everybody, hey, everybody, I'm fasting. Ta-da. Blow the trumpet. I did the dishes. Why, that's what happens in my house. Blow the trumpet. I gave, I gave an offering for the poor, right? That... <laughs> You've had your reward in full because you're supposed to be serving your God in secret so he who sees in secret will bless you. And that's the idea is, is you're singing in your heart to God. It's a personal rapport. And notice that it's hand in hand with how you talk to one another. And then verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. 
That is Christian life. And you believers in Christ, as we saw last week, have the privilege of living this eternal life to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. You have the privilege of having the life and the responsibility of living it. But it isn't necessarily in, in, uh, um, inevitable that you will live it. I know we want it to be. I want it to be that if I put on my shoes that I can play basketball, but it isn't necessarily true. If I put on my shoes then, and then I get up and go play basketball, then we've got the, the two things. But just putting on my shoes doesn't mean I'm playing basketball. You have the life. Are you going to live it? Every decision, everything in verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So we just put a big blanket over your entire life. If you're called Christian, then like Paul, for you to live is Christ and to die is gain. Everything I do is for him, through him, of him, about him. Don't get goofy about that. Don't get silly about the mundane things you do in your life and, and wonder about crunchier, smooth peanut butter. Which one does Jesus want? It's not the point. Don't get goofy about, do I take a left or take a right here? What is Jesus telling me? That's not how it works. Everything that you do, you're doing for him, with him, in a fellowship with him, about him. And so you're making sandwiches. Well, I got to make sandwiches. The kids have to go to school, right, moms and dads? So we're going to make the sandwich and send them to school. We all know sanctified is crunchy. I try to joke with you about that a couple times a year. But you're making the sandwich. It's not so much what you put in it. It's why you're doing it. It's that I love these children. It's that this is a chore that needs to be done, but I won't consider it odious. It won't be burdensome to me because it's a privilege to have these kids and to provide for them. And what God has given me and these children and the means to support them and encourage them is the privilege of this moment of making this sandwich. So no, it's not about the specifics of ham and cheese or do we use rye or wheat or any of these silly things. It's about why I'm doing what I'm doing. So you know he likes smooth, and you make it crunchy because you want to convert him. Figure out how that's about the Lord, right? That's the way to think. How is this for God, and how am I going to glorify God in doing it? And don't get OCD wrapped around the axle about details that are not the point, right? Don't put something in there that is uh, designed to um, destroy the person, but do it out of love for their nutrition, so he hates peanut butter. Well, he's getting peanut butter. No. <laughs> do, what, do what is a loving thing toward the child for God's sake because you love God and therefore you love what he loves. You see what I mean? It, you can make a sandwich for the glory of God. But it's not, it's not um, the little details that you're like, I wonder which... Which of these, these little options this is my point, is my ridiculous illustration. Because of the word of Christ richly dwelling within me so that I'm relating to one another in the things of God, I'm singing in thankfulness to God in my heart, you then can move forward with the 
peace of Christ in your heart in all your relationships. And the household is the most difficult place in the world. The household is the toughest environment that you live in, and it is why going to work becomes a blessing. Those of you who get up and go to work, or or we just recently experienced that we didn't go to work for a while because we all worked at home, right? We all remember now, oh, yeah, it was good to get up and go. And not because we hate the people there or it's miserable or anything like that. It's just it's hard. It's work. You who sit in your cars in the, park, in the driveway when you get home from work and you're trying to collect yourself. Okay, we're going to go. We're going to go do this. It's not that you don't want to be there. It's that it's work. Quit nudging each other. <laughs> we're all nudging each other here. The people in your life are trouble. Starting in the mirror. And they see the things about you that you know are there, but you don't want to look at. And while you've gotten accustomed to the smell, it's always stinky to them. Olfactory fatigue only goes so far, right? The household is the toughest arena. It's also Satan's greatest attack. I believe that the legitimate appetite of human sexual contact in marriage is Satan's primary avenue or his, one of his main highways of attack into the human race. The act of marriage, husband and wife becoming one flesh, is a great blessing in life. The Augustinian solution to the issue of sex by saying that we need to become spiritual beings and not so connected with the flesh, he's just showing his platonic dualism. It's not the way to approach this. So that when the, within the Roman Catholic system, sex becomes only for children for procreation. That's not God's design. It's a blessing. It's a blessing of marital union, and it's only blessed in that marital union, which is a covenant, God's covenant, between two people, husband and wife. That's the blessing of, of marriage and sex. Satan attacks us in this avenue, and it becomes a curse. And you take one of God's greatest blessings, and you do it against him. You do it in opposition to him. You do it what should be the expression of an inside-out love and devotion to the other. You now are doing it together against God, and you're turning it into a curse. And this is why Christians are so um, you know, consistently upset about sexual sin. It's Satan's primary attack on the human race. And we say, well, we need to trace the decadence of civilizations when, uh, with the tracing of sexual perversion and immorality. Yeah. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, which tells you the progress of degradation in civilizations. It goes right to sexual sin because Satan is attacking us here. The New Testament doesn't talk about fasting very much. Did you know that? Jesus does in the Gospels, but it's not a major theme in the New Testament, in the epistles. It's not even a major theme in the Gospels, fasting. But one place Paul does mention fasting in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is in sexual contact with your spouse. When he says, do not deny one another your duty to one another sexually because you'll give the devil an opportunity. It's an interesting thing to say. You give the devil an opportunity because he's attacking us at our appetites. And he says, if you're going to abstain maritally, you do it for the purpose of prayer. But it's only a short, it's not a long prayer. It's not a, it's not a well, this, the next 10 years we're praying. It's a short thing because you're giving the devil an avenue. 
Why am I talking about this? Because when you get into the household code, we're talking about Satan's attacks. We're talking about the toughest part of life. And one aspect of that is husband and wife and the, the blessing of that union. And I'm not saying these things to give anybody a guilt trip. I'm saying these things that we tell the truth about them. There is a place in which in your life it is wrong. It is, a, it is wrong not to enjoy this blessing of marriage. It's called husband and wife. Check out 1 Corinthians 7. And there's a place all others where it is always wrong to engage in it, where it is not between husband and wife. The end of the topic except to say it's extremely, um, it's a dangerous curse that you engage in in 1 Thessalonians 4. So we go to the household code, the application of the word of Christ richly dwelling within you. Wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Submission of wife to husband. Not about sex. I'm just using that as an illustration of Satan's attacks on us. Just in general, as is fitting to the Lord, you are in a role that God has assigned, and it's about God. It's not about you or him or has, he doesn't know what he's doing or all the things. He doesn't. Oh, God, save him. He's clueless. You're his help. So you, as a submissive wife, have to figure out how to help him. He can't drive. Well, you need to help him drive. He's just blind. Help him see. But as a wife, not as a replacement husband, to turn him into the wife. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. We all know that that doesn't apply to us, guys. Do not be embittered against them. What a summary statement, Paul. Why does he go there? Why does he have to go? Because it's the toughest part of life. It's the intimate part of life where you're dealing with your sin. You're dealing with the sins in your marriages and your households that I don't know about that I'm not dealing with with you. It's, it's inside, and it's, it's like the next thing after just you in the mirror dealing with what's really going on inside now. It's how that's affecting others in an intimate day-to-day -day relationship. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Why do children have to obey their parents in all things? All things being a summary of those things that don't contradict what God said to do or not to do. God never wants children to disobey God because mom and dad said to, ever. And that I can show you throughout the Bible, the, 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 the pecking order. If the, if, the, if the king says X and mom and dad say not X, you, you obey the king. The king is God. All right, but, but in general, Christian parents saying this is what God said or this, you need to obey your parents. But why? To please them? No, because it's well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so they will not lose heart. So set them up. Slaves in all things, Obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with the sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. How do you apply that today? Well, you're not slaves, but you have bosses. There's a different economic arrangement than household where it's a small business with a workforce that is owned by the household. So you're not that, but you do have a business that you work for and there's an authority structure. So apply it. Whatever you do, servants, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Whew. That is very helpful. You're not trying to please the boss. 
You're not trying to displease the boss. You're looking at the capital B boss. You're trying to please God because you love him, because you're thankful to him in verse um, 15. But also because you know that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. That boss is going to pay you or not. That boss has a material, temporal consequence. But you are marked for eternity. And your decisions at work, the Lord Jesus is recording toward the judgment seat of Christ. So the reward that you really want is not that I got paid or got a promotion or got a raise or got a good write-up or got my, I got the, the, the employee of the month parking spot, right? The things that we worry about or that you have good status or in the politics of the office, you are, you're not one of the people that's constantly being beat up on, that they basically leave you alone or acknowledge your competence, you know, to survive at the, at the, at the job site. No. You are serving the Lord, expecting the reward to come from him. And, and Jesus says in Matthew 6, you're not serving your boss after the flesh to feed your family. You seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness. And these material, temporal needs, these logistical things you need, God will add these. Everywhere you look where God is talking about your provision, it's not from the sweat of your brow and the work of your hands. If you belong to God, God provides for you. And you do your work heartily so that you'll have something to share with others. Never forget, like the boss has his role, the the person, the employer has his role, but your provision is from God. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he's done in that without partiality. The Lord Jesus is a fair assessor of your performance. And he gave you the spirit for a reason. You're supposed to live this life to please God. And that includes your labor. So what? So every opportunity to serve God, every chance you get to make a good decision to please him, every challenge that you're facing, every hardship that God has in front of you is an opportunity to win or lose. It's a success or a failure moment in your life as a believer. You can either respond to God and trust him and apply his word to the circumstance and recognize what you're responsible for is also what you're capable of. I can love this person anyway. I can walk in dependence on God's spirit despite my feelings in this circumstance. I can bring God's word to bear and despite what's been done to me, I can forgive because I've been been forgiven much more. You can trust in God and live out the life in every opportunity, or you can blow it. Who's the worst baseball team right now? <laughs> I love asking that question in, uh, in New England. It's not the Red Sox, the first thing on your mind. Is it the Cubs? Who, who's the consistent they were glad to show up, but they didn't do so well. Oh, don't say the Rangers. <laughs> what about football? Who's the football team that they're like, yeah, the Cowboys are fumbling all over the place? Consistent loser, right? Pick your team that's the consistent loser. Detroit or whoever. Chicago. Are you the Bears? <laughs> Are you the person that every time there's a chance to say no to flesh and yes to God, you basically say yes to the flesh and no to God? 
I don't question that you have trusted in Christ and proclaimed his death and you're a believer and you're set and have eternal life. But are you consistently losing in these opportunities? Because you won't say my feelings are second, God's word is first. God's spirit is more powerful. Don't be a loser. Don't consistently fail. Start responding to God and see it as an eternal moment of success. That's my challenge to you when we talk about the riches of divine grace. We have this life for a reason. Our Father, thank you for the eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ that we proclaimed. We praise you for the time we've had to meditate on some of these things and to think through a little exposition in Colossians 3. The application being, Father, that you've given us this life. What a privilege it is to live it. What a forfeiture when we don't. And it is our abiding prayer for our loved ones, family, friends, neighbors, employers, employees, co-workers and the people on the street around us that don't know Jesus Christ, that you would open the door to faith for them. They need a preacher, Father. They need the message clearly preached. They need to know Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, has died for their sins, the sins of the entire world, and risen from the dead to offer them eternal life. Father, we need the the clarity of, of heart, the walk with you, the the consistent walking with you, and the openness and the compassion that only you can provide to be ready with those words. You need to prepare the the speakers, Father. But you have to prepare the hearts of those around us. We cannot open the door. You have to. Give us wisdom not to try to force those doors open and make us successful as we consider those around us. Father, we know that this concern for one another is the product of our walk with you. And so I do pray that we would be stronger every day as we pay attention to your word. Encourage us, strengthen us, advance us, develop us so that we're more like your son. To your glory, all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. We all said, amen.